The Guardian. Welcome to another Guardian Australia Brisbane Festival podcast. I'm Vicky Frost, and later I'll be joined by Andrew P. Street and Van Badham to discuss everything we've been seeing at the festival. Later in the programme, I'll be joined by David Berthold, who will be here to discuss the independent theatre programme which he has curated. But first, I'm joined by Maxine Meller, a writer of one of the projects David is behind. She's written The Wizard of Oz, which is a co-production between Le Boite Theatre and the Danger Ensemble, an interesting choice for a writer given that Danger Ensemble don't normally work with them. The performance begins with a red-haired, tough-mouthed drunk welcoming an approaching cyclone. And right from that moment, it's clear this is not your regular take on the childhood classic. I suppose I want to start right at the beginning, I guess, with this story, which for anyone who's seen the play will be an apt kind of place to start, I think, uh, given the fact that story is quite a theme throughout that play. I was brought on as sort of an ancillary sort of thing. So it was between... Danger Ensemble's artistic director, Stephen Mitchell Wright, and David Berthold, they sort of got together and decided what's something that we can do next year during the festival. And they gave Danger Ensemble a whole range of shows that they could pick from. And nothing really excited him until he got to The Wizard of Oz. And then Stephen said, I'm going to do The Wizard of Oz. And he was absolutely terrified. He had no idea what that would mean. And then David gave him the added challenge of working with a writer because Danger Ensemble's aesthetic is very edgy, very avant-garde, and they've sort of been well known for that. But the challenge for them was to work with a writer um, who might weave a bit more narrative into their works. So that's when I was asked to come on board. And I had no real um, interest in The Wizard of Oz at all. (laughs) To me, it was like some kid's movie, a little bit corny, a bit ridiculous, um, and didn't really hold much relevance to an Australian audience right now. So why would we do it? Um, and was that your starting point? Pretty much, yeah. So I had to find a way to fall in love with the story like so many other people who sort of do have it treasured and locked away in their hearts. Um, so we came to the process by having, uh, we knew that we would have six weeks creative development spread throughout the year. And that's a time where I would be entering the room of the Danger Ensemble's creative process. So that's working with the seven actors, the designers, the director, all in the room coming up with the ideas together. Stephen was very adamant that he didn't want to do a literal retelling at all of the story itself. So that kind of gave us a framework then to bust it open and go, well, what do we look at with it? And since the film in 1939 and the book was written in the early 1900s, um, there's been so much stuff that's that's come out of that, you know, even like the idea of the rainbow and all this sort of colour and stuff like that. Um, David Bowie sort of has references to Wizard of Oz, Andy Warhol and all that sort of stuff. We started researching everything around The Wizard of Oz that's come since it was first written. And it was all of those influence that we sort of um, weaved together to create this sort of bit of a monster, (laughs) really. I find the starting point, this idea of um, someone trying to get back to Oz, whoever she is, and willing that cyclone to pick up her trailer and take her back there. I think that's such a strong starting point. How did that evolve? The idea of somebody wanting to get back to Oz very much came out of a sort of collective response of us all reading the story. And some of us in the group were connected to The Wizard of Oz as kids. So um, it was this sense of nostalgia tied to it because it's like you go there once and as a kid, you experience it, the colour, you know, the, the liveliness of it all, and it's really magical. But as an adult, you go back to it and you're trying to read other things into it. You're never quite experiencing it 
as you did the first time you ever sort of entered that world. So it kind of made a bit of sense that it's a kind of bittersweet story for us. You know, it's a bit of tragedy there that you can't ever get back to the original Wizard of Oz, your first experience of it. So you went and you workshopped with the actors as a devised piece. Did you write a full script or did you write sort of scenes? That must have been an interesting sort of experience. Yeah, it hasn't been an easy one at all. (laughs) This was really about me just like jumping into a completely new process. I've done devised works in the past, but it's been very clear the role delineation. So I'm the writer and they're the actors and there's a a divide there. But the way that the Danger Ensemble um, creates their works is to value the writing contributions of the actors as well. So even in the final uh, performance now, there's still some text that has actually been penned by the actors in there. So the process was that I would watch what they were coming up with, contribute, you know, bring stimulus materials, things like that, just as any other member of the group. And then I would go away in our off time and then turn it into something. So I would try and weave some sort of narrative out of what I was seeing them do, the themes that were emerging, um, ideas that kept repeating themselves. And so I think the first draft was a bit um, chaotic because it had so many of the ideas in there. I was just really trying to capture the essence of what we were interested in exploring in that first draft. And then it was a case of pairing it back, adding in new things, rehearsing parts of that script and then improvising off of it. All of the early drafts were quite different but there was still the same sort of threads coming through and those are the ones that have sort of ended up in the final work. So, for example, the the central character, Judy G, um, which is sort of a loose interpretation of Judy Garland, um, the drunk Judy Garland (laughs) who sort of washed up, um, she has appeared from almost the first week that we were developing stuff, um, very much the work of Margie Brown-Ash, who plays her in the show. So, she, is, she is such a great performance. Yeah, it's she's just a really good performance. She's, and she sort of created that character from scratch, so it felt right that, it, that she would end up in there and she would be playing her. But so many things have changed throughout it. We've had even who's playing Dorothy has always been up for grabs in the show. We've sort of played around with different roles and things like that. Even when we got to rehearsals, uh, so we had four weeks rehearsal, I brought a draft there, which I had not slept, basically trying to get this thing ready for rehearsals to start. And uh, we ended up getting in there and then sort of ripping it open again. As a writer, you're constantly going, I have no idea what this is anymore. And so you're constantly trying to like scrabble to catch up and then feel like you've got a grip around the whole show and then it sort of changes again. It's a real process, like trying to get your head around. It's, it sounds quite bruising for a writer, <laughs> you know, to be honest. Yeah, you know, it is. It's, it's probably been the biggest uh, challenge of my writing career to date, just even in redefining the role of what a writer does and can do in theatre. Um, that's been one of the major the major shifts for me in my thinking. And are you happy with what's ended up on stage? I am like my worst critic, so there'll be things that I'm like, oh, I could do that, I could do this, but you just reach a point where you have to like take hands off and, and give it to an audience and let them be sort of the final judge of it in a way. I'm happy when the audience is enjoying it, you know, and I can see them responding to the things that they're seeing on stage. I, I very much use them as my guide in finding a way through it. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that I went to see uh, Wizard of Oz on Saturday night and we had a discuss of it uh, yesterday's podcast. 
there's lots I like about it, but I could slightly tell. I felt that like bits of it had been devised and then perhaps stitched together slightly. <laughs> and I sort of wondered about the ending and whether perhaps such a mad, mad sort of system of making everything together to impose a narrative on it had been quite difficult, actually. Yeah. Well, it has been. And, and I think because, you know, trying to redefine this role of what the writer is, it's like Danger Ensemble's previous work has very much been avoiding narrative and character. The performers themselves bring their own persona to the shows. Even navigating that has been a, a real struggle within, within this model of working, but I think that's why we were put together in a way. I think it's been a big experiment. <laughs> It feels almost like you wrote a play and before you got to see your play as you wrote it, someone's adapted it, almost. <laughs> almost. So you're almost seeing it in adaptation sort of right from the get-go. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, I, I kind of cottoned onto that quite early on, that my work is just as much a piece of the puzzle than anybody else's in it. And I think that's very much the style of um, Danger Ensemble's work, is that everybody's contributions are weighted equally. And I had a little more responsibility in that I would go away and work independently of everybody else and try to stitch it sort of together. But um, there was a real push for me not to like just try and tie neat bows around everything that I have to accept that there will be um, meta things going on outside of the work that might not quite make sense to me in a literary way, but might speak to different people in the audience for different reasons that we can't exactly orchestrate. It, it has been interesting because it's like, here's a version and now here's a new version and try this one and try that. And, you know, like you'll be throwing drafts out the window as soon as they've sort of come off the press and rearranging things and cutting stuff up. And then you'll find that now at a, the point that you're at now, you need to go back and revisit the first draft that you ever made and like bring it back. So it, it, it sounds <laughs> it's like, exhausting. But it sounds like such an interesting thing to do as a writer, a really unique thing to do as a writer. Those opportunities don't really come oh, very exactly. often when people yeah. will challenge your work in such a way, even as you're making it, I yeah. think. Um, so it must have been really <laughs> fantastic. And I really enjoyed the results. I mean, yeah. you know, even though for me it didn't all quite come together at the end, uh, it was by far one of the most interesting uh, nights of theatre I've spent here. And it plays until the 28th. Right up through the rest of the festival. Thanks very much for joining Thank us, Max. You. Thank you. This is Guardian Australia's Brisbane Festival podcast. And I am joined now by Van Badham and Andrew P. Street, or as I like to call them, Van Drew. So Andrew, actually, I must say, Andrew hasn't made a podcast appearance yet because he's basically been in a gig or in an interview for the whole time he's been here. So have you been having fun? I have been having fun. My ears are still ringing broadly, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's, been, it's been frantic, but great. So I think you've been seeing Ghost Poet. It was the last night of his uh, Australian tour. The crowd was very enthusiastic, although it was a seated gig, and I think that confused him terribly. And finally, about midway through, he sort of called for everybody to, to stand up, and, uh, and that did dramatically change the vibe of the show. I find seated gigs very odd, and I've been to a lot of them in Australia. In fact, I've been to an awful lot of them in Australia, and I think they kill it sort of straight away, to be honest. Well, particularly with something like Ghost Poet, where it's hip-hop, um, it's very, very beats-driven, and it just seemed wildly inappropriate to have people sitting there sort of twiddling their thumbs. So uh, for listeners who don't know, tell us a little bit about Ghost Poet. Uh, Mercury nominated in 2011 and recently brought out a second album. It's 
uh, a bit of a step up from the from his debut. It's it's a bit more songy than uh, than beatsy. Although you know he's always had a very songwriterly quality to his material, and um, and the songs got rearranged quite a lot live, which was interesting. He had a, a live band going, so there was a live drummer, two keyboard players, one of whom played guitar as well. It was all very live and all very organic. But again, it, it had that beat to it, and it had that like very bass heavy mix, and so. Everything was just sort of going through your body like a freight train. Good night? Very good night. Very good night. And busy. Was it busy? I think it was sold out. It was certainly very full, which was good because uh, Dick Diver, which was the best show that I've seen so far, probably played to maybe a third full Spiegel tent, which was a shame because they killed it. It's not even that big, the Spiegel tent, actually. I'm surprised by that. We should say Dick Diver, uh, Andrew P. Street has given uh, Guardian Australia's first five-star review of the festival too. So tell us what was so brilliant about it. Their records are very good. I was familiar with their stuff. They kind of do a, a shambling sort of early 90s indie rock pavement and Sebado via New Zealand. So so our prime, basically. <laughs> They're of our prime. Exactly. Is that what you're saying? Okay, yeah. Exactly. Back when music was good. <laughs> Not I like the that. noise these days. The young people with their hippity hop. <laughs> you know, they're very loose live and... On record, that can kind of come across a little too cool for school. But live, they just come across as four friends who put a band together. And they, they all sing, they all write. It was a, a extraordinarily upbeat night. And hearing those songs live, they just took on a different element to sort of seeing them all grinning at each other while they're playing. It was really thoroughly joyful. And that was a late night gig at Spiegel Tent, I imagine after La Soiree, which... A group of us went and saw last night, which is an interesting show to go and see with colleagues, some of whom you don't know that well, given the amount of nudity and, of course, um, that special hanky trick. Uh, what did what did you make of it, Van? Well, I've seen many of those performers before. Last Soiree is the latest evolution of a, a show that was known as Le Clique, which was, of course... Uh, Edinburgh Standard for years and years. Now, that was one of your treats at the Edinburgh Festival. You'd go, you'd eat a battered Mars bar, you'd throw up in your pants, you'd sell four tickets to your own show, and then you'd go and see Le and everything would be better. So it was great to be reunited with people like Ursula Martinez and that whole aesthetic in the Spiegel Tent. The Spiegel Tent is, of course, that wonderful wooden mirror tent that travels around the world as a festival venue. And it was where uh, Marlene Dietrich's movie Blue Angel, one of her very first movies, was shot with Justice von Sternberg. So it's that whole cabaret aesthetic built into the actual tent. I love it. It's fun, I think. And, you know, the tent has a real atmosphere to it. And you're right, it's, it is a festival treat. It's kind of, you know, I've gone and seen my proper bit of theatre, you know, important, proper tech space, all of that sort of thing. And now we're just going to sit down and we're going to have a nice glass of wine and we're going to watch this ridiculous man with a fake Italian accent who can't really juggle crowd surf to Queen. And what's wrong with that? I thought it was slightly patchy, to be honest. There were some acts I liked more than others. The puppeteers sort of left me a bit cold, to be honest. Uh, the Queen, upstanding for the Queen? We're the Guardian, we don't upstand for the Queen. You know, there, there were bits of it I liked and other bits of it that I was slightly like ho-hum about. Um, but it, it was fun. I mean, it was kind of like going to the pub. Some conversations aren't that boring and other ones are brilliant. And I laughed quite a lot. What about you, Andrew? Did you enjoy it? I, I did. I missed the first half. So I, you I sidled in, didn't you? I, I did. I, I actually completely blagged my way in. So apologies to <laughs> the very lovely uh, door girl who I said I was just popping in to uh, meet a friend or... <laughs> and sit down and have a long drink for a whole drink. second half. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> what I saw, I actually really enjoyed. I mean, you're right. It was up and down, but the highs were high, I thought. There is loads to enjoy there. There's really loads. Spiegel Tent. It was really busy on a Sunday night. It was absolutely packed. Couldn't get a seat. And that sort of <laughs> raucous, allowed space to just be a bit rude and naughty and saucy. It's that sauciness. Mm. Saucy is a nice word. It is saucy and it's fun. It is really fun. And uh, actually, we would just seem to be in the Spiegel tent yesterday because you also saw something in the afternoon. Yeah, I saw Fear of a Brown Planet, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It is a stand-up show. It's two Australian comedians called uh, Naseem Hussain and Amar Rahman. And they're just standard Australian blokes, you know, nasal accents, very laconic. They're regular Australian guys who just happen to be brown Muslims. And the whole show, well, most of the show, actually, to be fair, is about these two guys who've had these surreal experiences of being normal Australians by virtue of being Muslims. Um, Naseem Hussain talks about getting a phone call from ASIO when he's working at a call centre and getting summoned in to have a chat about the Muslim community, at which point he decides to, he'll convince them to take him to lunch. And he has this, like, friendly <laughs> chat with ASIO. And he, he tells this amazing story about his agent sent him to Western Queensland to do some gigs. He's on a plane full of white people absolutely freaking out, makes the mistake of helping an old woman with a handbag. And somebody comes to intervene. Like, this is where you stop, this is where you put the handbag down. When they're on their political material... It's absolutely brilliant because these guys are angry and they have every right to be. You know, this sort of ridiculous political situation they've been put in where they're suspects on the basis of their skin, really, for the most ridiculous, extreme minority acts of terrorism in the world. Amarama does this great bit about the Muslim community desperately hoping that the next act of terror is going to be committed by a white person. Like, there's got to be a crazy white person. And this sense of, you know, relief when the Boston bombing happened and the first reports were about crazy white people and they were like, yeah, no, they're going to leave us alone. And then the bombers turn out to be Chechen and then Muslims and it's like, no, wrong kind of white person. And it's, it's, you know, it's confrontational stuff. But is it funny? It is, it is. And their political stuff is really funny. Um, Rahman does a lot of jokes about his dad, which are cute and funny, but that's not what you're there for. Like, there are other comedians who can do jokes about their dad and it's the anger and the humour that comes from the anger that I think is really necessary. And I just wanted to hear more of it. I mean, Rama does some jokes about <clears throat> various uh, geopolitical complications in the Middle East that are raw and fantastic. Like, he opens his set with a joke that knocks the audience on the floor. Do you laugh? Do you cry? Do you, you know make a phone call to a security agency that's a really great response i think as well to comedy that kind of not just sort of laughter that kind of confusion is a really great response i think well yeah this is the thing and i mean i don't know you have to sort of self-critique as a as a white person going do i want to see these muslim guys do more jokes about their muslim experience so i will feel better that you know brown people can laugh about racism um, because I did find myself going, I don't want to hear about your dad. I want to hear about Tony Abbott and Stop the Boats and stuff like that. Like, is that me being racist? I don't know. Like, it, it's a show that puts you in several interesting positions and there's a lot more going on than just two guys telling you some jokes about, yeah, I'm brown, even though that's ostensibly the act. It's really clever. Thank you very much, Van Drew. <laughs> You're unfortunately going to be split up because Van is leaving us to go back to Melbourne. Why would you want to do that, Van? And um, at the moment, it does seem quite crazy, but it does give me an opportunity to deny the relationship rumours. So, <laughs> which I'm going to just be strengthening in her absence. Uh, but Andrew, you'll be joining us on the podcast again for more musical news throughout the week. We'll look forward to that. So, thank you both. 
Joining us now is one of Australia's leading directors, who is also the artistic director of Le Boite, David Berthold. Hello. Hello, Vicky. So I'd like to talk to you about your festival role. You've come onto the team as um, the independent theatre curator. Is this the first time that role has existed? It is. Uh, Noel was very keen to have a, a quite thorough stream of independent theatre in the festival, not only from Australia, but also from other nations, and asked me if I'd be interested in, in curating a sequence of shows, and I jumped at the chance. In terms of sort of previous years, how has independent theatre sat in the festival previously? Uh, there used to be a program called Under the Radar, I guess has been the closest to that, which was a discrete program and in a way, a kind of pseudo-fringe, if you like. Brisbane's never really had a fringe festival. And in a way, that was the de facto fringe festival. So most of that sort of work has sat under that umbrella. But I think we all felt that the time had come to more fully integrate the independent theatre within the festival. So it certainly sits in sites around the festival, but it doesn't sit as a sort of, you know, discreet, umbrellaed, fringe-like program it sits much more in an integrated more, way yeah central it's much more central yes, to the absolutely. program isn't mm. it and it's quite wide-ranging the program as well they kind of go from much bigger works to really quite small intimate you know one performer kind of pieces mm. how did you put that program together bit by bit as sometime would say and after a while i began to see some interesting relationships between a lot of the work Sometimes it was in form, sometimes, sometimes it was in content. Some of the, those productions sit in a very high style. You know, there's a relationship between, say, the work of Tommy Bradson you know, as, a, as a cabaret theatre performer and the Little Ones Theatre who have done Psycho Beach Party. There's a sort of Susan Sontag sort of camp about those works that speak to each other and that related in some way, I think, to our own production of Wizard of Oz, in a sense, you know, that I could begin to see relationships. And tell me about the mix of Australian and Brisbane performers and um, international work. Yes, absolutely. I mean, an arts festival wouldn't be that without it, of course. Over at Metro Arts, we've programmed uh, Action Hero with a Western from the UK. Actually, we've just put a video of it live on the site. I suggest you go and see it. It looks amazing fun. It's a hoot. It's, it's, it's enormous fun. And coming next week from Canada, also uh, Little Iliad and Ajax, which is a beautiful, intimate work, which I'm really looking forward to see live, I've only seen on DVD, but I think it'll make a, a big impact. There's quite a lot of Melbourne work there, and it was interesting to see that pattern develop. That wasn't a conscious choice at all, but certainly when we you know, arrived at our final list, there, were, there was quite a lot of Melbourne work, which is indicative, I think, of quite an exciting uh, independent theatre environment in Melbourne at the moment. And um, what about Brisbane? What's the independent theatre community like here, sort of out of festival? It quite burgeoning, I might say. When I first came here uh, four or so years ago, there wasn't a lot here. There were probably only a handful of independent theatres that were uh, operating regularly. And I think part of that had to do with there not being very many venues, in fact, some, something as banal as that. That you know, there are no kind of pub theatres around, no you know old Fitzroys like in Sydney, for example. There was Metro Arts, but that's a multi-arts venue. And apart from that, there were very few places for independent theatres to regularly present work. And, and one of the first things that I did when I took up the artistic directorship of Le Bois was to provide a platform for that. 
because it felt to me that a healthy independent theatre was crucial for a healthy Lavoite and crucial to a healthy Queensland theatre company or whatever. And now I think there, there, there are probably a dozen or so thriving independent theatres around town and, and that's been a really exciting thing to observe. And so uh, presumably sort of, you know, in future years, you see sort of the independent theatre strand just becoming more important to the festival? And having conversations with uh, other artists, I think, is an important thing. Uh, sometimes independent theatre companies can be, in a way, confined to the kiddies' table, if you like, yeah, uh, yeah. and really not be allowed to develop beyond that. And I've been quite assiduous, really, in finding pathways or finding opportunities for independent companies to blossom beyond that in some way. And, and so you're all gathered together up at QUT. How, how do you feel about that? I wondered whether um, it wouldn't have been nice to have you a bit more connected to sort of that main festival hub on South Bank. I don't know. The Creative Industries precinct at QUT there is quite an interesting space. And even two or three years ago, I remember Vinal saying it was, a, it was a space that he wanted to activate. You know, the idea of a kind of independent theatre hub, I don't think was in his mind then. But he very much liked the space, the environment there. I mean, it's an old parade ground. It's an old army barracks. You know, it's, in a way, it's built for demonstration, if you like. Interesting that you then have all those canvas tents on it now. I mean, you know. Yes, it resonates quite well. Because a lot of the old barracks buildings are still there. It was their heritage buildings. And to be in a parade ground where soldiers and tanks had been <laughs> present and to have a kind of, for it to be called the Theatre Republic and to have kind of tense there. There is a sort of resonance kind of going on there for people to know the history of the environment. And I've programmed it in such a way that, in theory at least, all five of those shows will finish at about the same time <laughs> so that people will emerge from those five spaces and, and converge into the parade ground. Um, so there's a lot of new writing in uh, this festival. Great. And I think new writing feels like a very hot topic at the moment in Australian theatre. Myself, I find this argument about um, adaptations and how much they count as sort of new writing. I slightly wonder whether it's a little bit storm in a teacup. To me, writing is writing and boxing it in feels a bit odd. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on kind of that debate that's been raging. I'm with you on that. I think it's entirely a storm in a teacup. And of course, there have always been you know, adaptations of classic works or classic stories, and there's always been new writing. And the argument that what appears to be a proliferation of adaptations is somehow pushing away new Australian plays as we conventionally understand them, I think is, is, is quite wrong. You know, I think statistically, I think you can demonstrate that that is simply not a true thing. In a way, it's a little unfortunate that the argument's been framed, you know, using Simon Stone, for example. I think that's a very unfortunate framing because Simon's a very good writer as well as being a very good director. And, and, and to somehow discount his work as a writer because he also happens to be a director it seems to be, to be quite unfair. Just to give listeners not familiar with this debate a little bit of context, Simon Stone has recently been responsible for um, the Cherry Orchard uh, over at MTC in Melbourne and um, Miss Julie at Belvoir. He ruffles some feathers, I think, because they tend to be Simon Stone after... Well, it's too, you know, Chekhov, yeah, don't they? And that's that's sort right. of he, the kind he, of billing he, is, is the, interesting. I think the billing question is a different argument, actually. Mm, and, yes. and, and he takes top billing for 
uh, Cherry Orchard and for Miss Julie. And, and I, I actually think that's a little bit problematic, particularly with Cherry Orchard, which was very close to Chekhov, in fact. He might have taken top billing for that if he'd called it maybe a different title, but that's certainly quite different to Strindberg. So it's actually two quite interesting examples. It feels very odd to me to focus an argument around someone who's a great talent. And mm. I, I don't really know where anyone wants to get from this argument because what we're just not going to adapt things. If I feel like you should be free to do as many different types of writing as you want, really, mm. rather than sort of pendant. There should be room at the, at the table for all of those things, you know, for a meal of fascinating variety, you know, in, in the, the theatre menu uh, in, in this nation. Uh, Miss Julie, for example, which he didn't direct uh, in a way that put a spanner in the works in a sense because he's <laughs> yeah. clearly working as a writer there because he didn't direct the production. So it was impossible to discount his work as a writer on that, for example. And, you know, that was a very well-written play and I think you would have to call that, if labels are important, you would have to call that a new Australian play. I was talking to Andrew Upton about this after uh, Sydney Theatre Company's uh, new season launch and he said something interesting. He said the um, casualty of this is not Australian new work, if there is a casualty of it, of adaptations. It is, in fact, international new writing uh, on Australian stages. I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. I think that's absolutely right. Um, there, there's been very few productions of new international writing on our main stages uh, in recent years. Certainly we're in a cycle now where it, it's actually quite rare to find new international writing on, on an Australian stage. Certainly in Sydney, that's perhaps less so in Melbourne, but certainly in Sydney. It feels like we've ended this on a slightly downbeat note, which we shouldn't do though, because there is a whole array of new writing and just new theatre work up at QUT. You're all there till the 28th, and I would urge people to go and find you. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Vicky. For information on all the shows in today's podcast and more, you can find them at Guardian Australia, where you'll also find our daily live blog, reviews, features and interviews from around the festival. Really, there's an awful lot to discover. Join us tomorrow for another festival podcast, or if you've missed any episodes, you can download them now or subscribe through iTunes. The Guardian. 